I'm so glad you're here today. If you are new to our congregation, welcome. Today, you should know we are 100% absolutely going to get into our Bibles as we go through 1 Timothy or finish up 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't know where that is, it's right after 2 Thessalonians because I I really feel like helping you out today. Uh, We've been studying uh, instructions the Apostle Paul is giving to his protege, if you will, this man named Timothy, instructions on how to run a church or what we are calling in this series house rules. The past few weeks, we've been looking at issues of leadership, qualifications, and authority. What kind of character this person should have in the church as, as, as a leader, and even considerations of gender. Two weeks ago was about authority and gender, which will probably stand as the longest sermon of this year. Last week, we looked at the role of elder and also spent a little time discussing the role of gender in that discussion. Our temptation we have shared is to make all our discussion in these sermons about gender identity or gender issues because of today's culture. But the encouragement that we offer is that rather than focusing on those things, we recognize we're giving, being given descriptions of the spiritually mature Christian, which is something we should all be endeavoring toward, regardless of whether you are going to be called to one of these roles or not. Likewise, we tend to fixate our attention on where the line is drawn. And sometimes with good reason, we need to focus on where is the boundary of orthodoxy, if you will. But sometimes we focus so much on that, what we cannot do or where we must stop, that we forget to spend more energy on where we are and what we can do and should be doing. So as we go through these qualifications, the, these are not simply for those who are in a leadership pipeline or are handpicked to, to, to be developed. They are requirements for certain positions and people. But with regard to all of us, these are still the kinds of people we should endeavor to be. Now, I've had the privilege of preaching, if you count today, three of the last five sermons, and somehow I managed to to avoid the last two sermons. I don't know if that was intentional or luck of the draw, but today I've been caught. Today, we're continuing in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 8, and, and we start a discussion about deacons. Again, welcome to everyone who hasn't been here before here at Faith Covenant Church, We open our Bible and we do not avoid, well, anything, I guess. So uh, let's read the passage together, shall we? Starting in verse 8. It says, In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. And then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. 
So perhaps the best place to start is with a definition, and it should certainly be the word deacon. Deacon comes from a very similar Greek word, diakonos, which simply means servant or minister. The deacon then is one who serves the church, but here in some sort of qualified role that requires a level of discernment into the deacon's qualifications. For the church, these individuals have been called the BBB, not the Better Business Bureau, but they handle the benevolence budget and building, if it helps to draw some general historic parameters for this role. There is some debate to how formal this is as a role or office in the church. As we look at the history and development of how we look at deacons, we have to begin the discussion actually in Acts chapter 6 as the establishment of some of this role. There we read about a discrepancy in church administration, uh, potentially due to favoritism or even discrimination within the early church. What we see in the situation of Acts chapter 6 is that the, the Greek or Hellenistic widows were not being cared for as well as the Jewish widows. So they complained about it. And rather than the apostles stepping in and personally overseeing the care of widows, they asked the congregation to select seven men who had helped oversee this ministry so that the apostles could more fully devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. These men, these seven, are described to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. The apostles lay hands on them, and it seems from that point on they are charged or commissioned with some of these specific duties related to care of the congregation. Of course, there is one issue when we look at Acts chapter 6. These men are not described as deacons, but it does seem that here is the root of a formalizing division of labor within the early church so that those primarily responsible for spiritual oversight are free to continue to do that and not spending most of their time distributing food, finances, or things of that nature. So we find in this division the full heart of Christ because certainly Jesus did not simply minister to spiritual needs, but he also cared for physical needs. When we read Mark 10, 45, we read that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. To serve, diakonia, it is the action of the diakonos, the servant. So we see that this servant leadership is near to God's heart, not simply in spiritual things, but in caring for the physical needs of people. And clearly we see this in Acts 6 being reflected in the early life of the church. Now we fast forward a couple decades to get to 1 Timothy. First Timothy, Acts chapter 6 probably happened within two years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, before Paul accepts Christ. In fact, Paul would be instrumental in the killing of one of those seven men who are selected, one of those seven which we might call at least loosely deacons. And now Paul is writing a list of qualifications describing the sort of person a deacon should be. And knowing his history, we should expect that he has put a lot of thought into who this person is and what they should look like. 
Now, these aren't lists, for example, that the man, the man has never been angry, for example, but that the man is not likely to be angry, who is well-mannered with great self-control. These sorts of qualifications paint the picture with some specifics to look for. These elements need to be present for consideration for these roles. So what then are the specific elements for a deacon? What are these qualifications? We're going to start with verse 8. It says, In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. We might say that this qualification is the qualification of self-control, or if you prefer, self-mastery. And we see it broken down into four distinctions. First, attitude, that you are that being worthy of respect certainly indicates a sort of bearing or attitude held by the deacon that is consistent and good and therefore worthy of respect. Someone prone, for example, to outbursts of rage is not someone who is exhibiting self-control and is therefore worthy of respect. The second thing we see here is sincerity. Sincerity indicates a strong tendency to tell the truth, to be transparent and honest in conversation and dealings. Self-control when you're reacting defensively to something someone has said, to not lie or mislead, to not stretch the truth, to make yourself look better. You are sincere. Thirdly, you are not a drunkard. That's my paraphrase. It says not prone to indulging in much wine in past sermons we've touched on our ten- tendency in the church to become a little legalistic and go beyond the written word just to be extra safe or something that in our preferences and in even our preaching we can do this and while we may well say that avoidance of alcohol is a great policy i cannot say and nor should you that it is certainly forbidden to Christians as we are prone to maybe draw that hard line. It's certainly not forbidden to Christians or even a pastor, dare I say. (laughs) For those of you that are Baptist, that's the first really edgy thing that I'm going to say today. (laughs) For those of you who grew up Episcopalian and Catholic, you are still figuring out the joke maybe. The idea here, the idea here is about a tendency to want wine in quantity that is more than anything that could be considered moderate or light. You exercise self-mastery in these areas rather than being ruled by instincts to lie, to use partial truths, to be shady, or to even have that extra glass because the first two were really good and everyone's having a good time, or I'm at home by myself so it's not going to hurt anyone. Those aren't the thoughts of someone with great self-control. The final illustration of self-control, the fourth, is not pursuing dishonest gain. This actually warrants just a little bit more discussion. This identifies the person who is not greedy or ruled by desires that are inflamed by wealth that is not their own, which could then lead them to pursue dishonest gain. I say this warrants a little bit more discussion because functionally, what were one of the three Bs? Budget. One of the, functionally, this is historically tied more 
closely to the office of deacon and that historically they have had a part in handling church finances. That's not how every church utilizes deacons, but it is one of the things we see historically, perhaps and likely in response to this being written in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Who do you trust to handle a church's finances or even the physical resources in an honest fashion? The deacon who is not likely to pursue dishonest gain. Unfortunately, it isn't too uncommon to hear about someone who is embezzling funds from a church or mismanaging, mismanaging funds. Perhaps, perhaps if we pushed more into understanding someone's heart for things and their drive for, for gain, we could avoid accumulating so many stories like this. You might say, for someone who drives a lot for the church, we check driving records in our background checks. Perhaps there is a point where we should start doing credit checks. I know, two edgy things in this sermon so far. And that's just breaking down the first qualification for a deacon. So let's go ahead and take a look at the second qualification. The second qualification in verse 9, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. The second qualification for a deacon, you could say, is orthodox convictions. Orthodox means established or approved, traditionally accepted. So a deacon in their religious convictions must hold to orthodox positions. This is not a place for someone exploring their convictions or figuring out exactly what it is that they believe, regardless of how earnest they are in that pursuit. This is someone who holds deeply to these truths. They, like orthodoxy, are established in their faith. And furthermore, they hold that faith with a clear conscience. We have to remember that in the first chapter of this letter, one of the things Paul says to Timothy, which is indispensable in the fight against false doctrine to holding on to true doctrine, is a good conscience. There were men who had ignored their conscience and thereby had embraced things that were false, things that were not orthodox. And regardless of how sincerely they held on to those beliefs, that did not make them right or make it acceptable. They were not holding orthodox positions and they were also not holding those positions in good conscience. We talked about the nature of our conscience, that it usually doesn't evaporate all at once, but by ignoring our conscience in one area again and again, we weaken it. And then we can ignore it more in other areas until suddenly it becomes more of a liability rather than an asset. Someone who has compromised their ability to discern and to hold truth, regardless of the strength of their current conviction, that person is not approved as a deacon within the church. Third qualification, verse 10. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. You know, in some wedding ceremonies, the officiant has that potentially very awkward moment at the end where they say, if anyone has any reason why these two should not be joined together in matrimony, please speak up now or forever hold your, 
your peace. And if you're in Hollywood, it's always some guy in the back who stands up, always in the back, who, who stu- stands up, I've always loved you, and I know you love me. Don't do this. Give us a chance. And everyone's shocked. Oh, my goodness. Like, I didn't see this coming. And people start having questions. Like, are these people going to get married? I have so many questions now. What's this about? I, I There seems to be something else going on, and it's just been uncovered. I have questions. This could be too far to stretch this, but it's kind of. (laughs) This is kind of like that moment for deacons. There, we'll set it. We set it. That's fun, right? Like an elder, an elder approaches someone and says, I believe you are exactly the kind of person we need in our church life. We need you, and I want the world to know, can we make this official? Would you, in light of everything in our relationship, consent to being a church deacon? Of course, the illustration falls apart if you're using a marriage analogy, because at that point, the realistic response is, it isn't, yes, what took you so long? The, the response is more, wow, thank you. Let me pray about that. But thank you so much for asking. This qualification, that's an exaggeration to some degree, but this qualification says, if we're making this official, before we make it official, we're going to give you a period of time to be tested where people can maybe interact with you, ask you questions, and certainly more so for people who have concerns with you assuming that position to come forward. Essentially, before this is official, is there anyone who has a reason why this shouldn't happen? Speak now or forever hold your peace. The third qualification for a deacon is that they are tested. Maybe part of that is Bible drills too. Test the faithful convictions. Test those other things. Now the fourth qualification. Verse 12, a deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Much like last week where we saw a similar qualification for an elder, here we have the same for the deacon. If someone is to manage some aspect of the house of God, they will generally manage their own house also well. We might say this qualification is having an irreproachable home life. Boy, that's a high bar, saying it that way. And it's worth pausing to note the order of events here. Do you notice this? One does not run the church well, and in this environment, learn the practices that will then help them run their house well. You don't become a deacon so you can run your house well. Rather, it is the person who has already demonstrated the ability to have an orderly house as a prerequisite to holding this church office. I pause because for many of us who want to serve in deep ways, who who believe they can be an asset to church ministries, and they probably are at, at some deep level, they would actually desire to be more specifically set aside in this task, maybe as a deacon. In this list of qualifications, perhaps this is an area we ignore too readily. We see here for all of us a warning that our desire to minister within the church should not happen apart from or even before our desire to minister well within our own home. This certainly doesn't mean everyone 
who's a deacon or an elder has a perfect home life. We, we talked about that last week. But we are looking for the sort of person who through their life has demonstrated healthy leadership in their own home setting. And that is the fourth and final qualification of the deacon given in 1 Timothy 3. So we have these four qualifications that are given. Self-control or self-mastery, if you prefer that. Orthodox convictions, tested beforehand, and irreproachable home life. Easy peasy. Let's talk about verse 11. Verse 11 says, In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Some of you were thinking, oh, he skipped a verse. Well, no, here we are. Verse 11, which introduces, it seems, another player to the story. Women, or maybe your Bible translation, it says wives. If we are to read this passage consistently along with the rest of the chapter, one thing really jumps out to us in this verse when we read it. And it isn't the word women. And it's okay. We can say it. Paul wrote it down first. So what sticks out or should stick out to us is the phrase in the same way. Here are the elders in the same way, deacons in the same way, women. So this has, as you could imagine, sparked debate about how we interpret in the same way. Let's start with what is clearly written. Clearly, we are talking about qualifications or ideals for individuals in the church. That's the scope of the entire chapter. In some Bible translations, we do see this understood as wise of the deacons, though grammatically we are not required to translate it that way. But if we look at in the same way, it certainly seems this is not a casual addendum, but that there is something direct here that Paul is identifying women who are associated or in leadership. And for these women or wives, here is what their qualifications should be. Paul says that they would be in the same way worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, temperate and trustworthy in everything. We already talked about respect and nothing new is added to that here. Next we see no malicious speech. That is saying things with the intent to do harm. Well, I certainly would hope that that would be rooted out from our midst in anyone where that could be found. You know, one of the differences sometimes referred to between men and women is that men are more disposed to physical aggression or acts of physical harm, whereas women are more prone to utilize speech to do harm. I think it's a generalization that can and is often overstated, but it does seem Paul is addressing something new, something unique that it is for women here. The next qualification, temperate. It means having moderation or self-restraint. We might as well say that it's self-control. There just isn't the list of examples after this that there were for deacons. Finally, we see in this verse that the woman is trustworthy. What she says, you can take to the bank. She has demonstrated in her life a character defined by honest interactions with transparency, trust, and truth. Yeah. Like we, 
We should all be shooting for that, but, but here's a qualification for someone. At the very least, Paul is advancing something new in his expectation of individuals in the church, here specifically females. And the question that is asked, of course, is, is this somehow part of the conversation about deacons? And women are also deacons. I need to say at the front that here, in this conversation, it is much more open than some of the conversations we have seen previously. Because the Bible is certainly, if we understand what the role of the deacon is, the Bible is full of women who occupy, at least functionally, the sort of place that we would see a deacon occupy. And furthermore, unlike maybe the discussion of elder, we do have a woman that it seems potentially is explicitly referred to as a deacon in the Bible, which we find that in Romans 16 and verse 1, which I would remind you is also written by Paul. Romans 16 is the final chapter of Romans, and Paul is giving greetings and recommendations. Basically, he's name-dropping a bunch of people that are near to his heart, and we read in the first two verses this. I commend you, commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Syncre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Here's a woman who is doing some stuff for the church. She is described as a servant of the church. She is being used in powerful ways. And the recommendation that follows her arrival, what are you to do with Phoebe, certainly seems to indicate that she has some integral ministry function. The word in Romans 16.1, deacon, used there, is diakonos. It's the same word. It could be a generic meaning. It could just mean she's a servant of the church or a minister. But it's the same word. And rather than saying Phoebe has served the church well, so receive her, or she has been very useful to me, Paul writes about people who have been helpful that way, Paul instead here refers to her as diakonos, noun, and then specifically links it her to a church in that capacity, the church of Sincre. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon. This commendation is likely given in part because she, we think she was probably the letter carrier for Paul. Paul was writing this in Corinth and she would have somehow been in Corinth and carried the letter for him to Rome. This is a common enough practice for letter carriers, for the person who's writing the letter to include commendations, basically introducing the recipients of the letter to the person who has brought the letter to them. So some would say, well, see, he... That's all he's doing here. He's just describing her as a servant. That's all this means. Maybe, but there seems to be some weight here that Phoebe is doing more than just serving the church in an extra sacrificial way in this moment. So you have this example of Phoebe, you know, in the same way we read in verse 11, and then women are talked about. And then you tie this to Phoebe. There's an interesting thing in the text here where when people say this is referring to the wives of deacons, it's interesting that the wives of deacons would be singled out and not the wives of elders earlier in the chapter as this, hey, elders' wives, do whatever, you know. But if you're a deacon's wife, these are the qualifications we're looking for in you. 
In the same way, when we look at that phrase, it definitely carries weight. Paul is identifying, it seems, roles within the church. Now, it would be weird for him to refer to all women in a role capacity. So what is he talking about? It seems that at the very least, he has identified women as an integral part of the ministry life of the church. And for those who are serving in integral ways, these are the qualifications. At the least, that seems to be the expectation And so he lays out the qualifications, the expectations given for those in leadership. Now, there's another side of this, though, which is, no, like the deacons are men, and this is something different. Like it's the wise or it's just women who are serving. We're not talking about deacons here. And let's maybe draw that out just a little bit, just a little bit. You see, verse 12, right after verse 11, is a clear reference to deacons being husbands of one wife, managing their house well. So if we take an argument from proximity, then this could very well just be a reference to the kind of wives that are referenced in the next verse. That seems a little weird to insert it this way and to use in the same way. It it makes us feel like Things are out of order or disjointed, but it opens the conversation. When we are definitely talking about deacons, it seems to be most closely associated with men in this text. When we look at the idea of spousal fidelity, that this is something that is related to the deacons, husband of one wife, the same thing is described in elders. Why, if this is a whole separate group, is It seems weird that spousal fidelity would not apply to to these women, unless, of course, they're already the wives of the deacons. We also look at Acts chapter 6 sometimes, that when these seven men were selected in the early church, they were all men. Again, one of the issues there is that why they provide a prototype for what this ministry looks like, they were never referred to as deacons. So the debate rages on. And I could literally go on back and forth laying little point grammatical issues. You know, that's not what I want to do. And if you're really honest, most of you also don't want me to do that this morning. You know, last week, Pastor James mentioned this idea when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to things we believe as a church, that there are primary, secondary, and tertiary issues. Jesus is Lord and Savior. He died for us. He rose again. Things like that. Primary can't mess that up. You know, this is perhaps a secondary. It's definitely not primary, a secondary issue. Let's keep things within context of, of doctrinally within the church where this is. The, the thing that makes it difficult leaving something kind of up in the air is that we want to be right across the board, right? Like, that's not just me, right? I, you want to be right across the board, And someone looking at 1 Timothy 3 would certainly have standings to say deacons are males because the conversation is too easily back and forth on when for them to take a different stance. Okay. But someone else could be persuaded that this opens the door fully, particularly when looking at it's in the same way these women. When looking at Phoebe, there seems to be some expectation of women that needs to be filled if Paul is specifically going to call out women in 1 Timothy 3. Okay, both secondary issues within the realm of church practice, church doctrine, secondary even within our 
house rules. This might be the first and last thing we talk about in this series, where at the end of the day, you have a pastor stand before you and say, It's a comfort then. If we can't 100% without some leap or without disregarding some aspect of scripture in our interpretation, it is a comfort that there is no incompatibility with church authority as we looked at in chapter 2. By the nature of the role, authority is delegated delegated to the deacons for carrying out these duties. The deacon does not assume authority over the elder. And we want to get it right because we want to be obedient. But at least we know we're carrying out obedience in this area. And sometimes making our best guess is the best move. And you know when we get to heaven, if God so chooses, he can tell us where we get it wrong. And I guarantee an issue like this is probably not the only thing on the list and won't be the biggest thing we get wrong on the list. And so the debate, again, rages on. And I could spend more time here, but I'd rather leave the debate open and move on because there is actually, for our context, for our church specifically, a more relevant and perhaps immediate issue to discuss regarding deacons. So, so let's move on. We look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. As we conclude this section, in fact, we draw close to the end of the chapter, we, we find a verse that seems to sum up the rewards of being a deacon, gaining excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. This excellent standing, by the way, is not a reference to rank. Sometimes we think of deacon as like a rank within the church. It's not like you become deacon and if you put in enough time, maybe you can make the elder board. That's really not the way we're supposed to be looking at it. The deacon is a servant. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. The excellent standing is much more about favor with God and men. You already need to be someone worthy of respect prior to the position. The position isn't supposed to give it to you, but in serving within this position, those qualities are now more openly affirmed by the church and used by God. It is good then that self-control is part of the character requirements for a deacon because such recognition could foster a spirit of pride. Uh, the second thing one gains is assurance. I love the word in, in Greek here for assurance because it, it actually means, it's a reference to the freedom one feels when you are confident. That sound nice. Sounds like, Anyone else here wants some assurance in some area of your life where you just feel free because you're so confident? If I asked, for example, I picked one of you randomly and said, hey, can you come up here and talk about verse 11? You have half an hour to prep. How much assurance are you going to have <laughs> when you come up here and present something that you've only had 30 minutes to dig into? Take someone who has studied it for 30 years and take out stage fright and things like that. Confidence, the assurance in the content of what it is you're presenting is there. They have an assurance. The deacon in serving has demonstrated and in fact gains confidence in matters of their faith 
in Christ Jesus. And that is an incredible reward for those who serve in this world. That is a definite gain. So coming off that, I know what you're thinking, right? Where's the sign-up? Where's the sign-up for deacons? I would like to subject myself to scrutinization of church leaders and congregants alike uh, for the purpose of gaining these things. I, I'm open to being asked about my home life, my finances, my vices, my virtues, what I believe and how firmly held onto are the convictions that I have. Do you know your Bible? You know, the Bible drill, Ezekiel 3.7. Let's see who can find it first. Let's go, let's go. Sign me up. You know, it sounds a bit silly when we put it that way. But a lot of our discomfort with this process is because we aren't quite living to the standards that we should. Our discomfort then is really more with ourselves than with the process, than with the qualifications. And even if you are qualified, being under scrutiny has a way of reminding us that there's always room to improve. But seriously, while we do not hold sign-ups for deacons or for elders for these positions of key leadership in the church, there is a sense in which you need to be these kinds of people. These are examples of spiritual maturity. Sign up to be that kind of person. Sign up to be the kind of person God has called you to be. Pray for self-control you might lack. Pray for your house and everyone in it. Pray that vices will diminish and disappear through the strength you find in Christ. Pray for your convictions to be established and firm and true and unswayed by the changing morality of our current culture. Sign up to be that kind of person. One of the really interesting things I had to reflect on when preparing this sermon was the question, where are our deacons? Where are they? You might not know this, but as a church, we have elders that are officially recognized, and we don't have deacons officially recognized, at, at least in this official sense. And some of that is more a product of our times, our church size, the way we're structured, and to some extent, the resources that are available to us. We are not wholly dependent on deacons to take care of the deacon sorts of things. We can hire people. We have administrators, if you will. For example, in the handling of finances, we have a security team that secures the finances or the giving on Sunday mornings, making sure that it's not missed managed in any way. We have a great facilities team on staff. You could say that many of these people operate in the role or in a duty of a deacon in all but the official title. And, and that could be mostly true for some. Maybe not completely, but mostly true. Certainly a deacon could be on staff, but no official deacons. This was kind of the question. No official deacons. We may need to ask ourselves why. Is it lack of qualified people? Now, that doesn't seem likely to be the case. Do we not need official deacons? And if that's the case, is that okay? I know we come from different backgrounds and places, so I think it's worth digging into this a little bit. Now, we have to remember the deacon role and purpose is in part to ensure that those spiritually leading, the spiritual leaders of the church are free to do that. So with that said, I don't believe it's wrong to not have deacons if the elders are not being tied up with things that they're specifically not called to accomplish and that prevents them from doing the things they are called to. 
If we look to Acts 6 as a model or setting a trajectory for our understanding of what it means to be deacons, what it means to be elders, what we know is that the church in Jerusalem explodes. It grows super quickly early on. And that there were probably thousands of Christians in Jerusalem before Acts chapter 6, before the time for these seven man, men, these prototypes of deacons were selected. And so what we find is that an issue arose that would have required too much time for the apostles to focus on. And suddenly then, in that situation, others are being appointed to serve the church in a specified ministry. Why? So that the apostles, the spiritual leaders, could focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. We don't look at the early church and accuse them of doing church wrong because they didn't start with deacons on day one. Like, we don't do that. We also don't assume that the church was totally disorganized. There was maybe some favoritism or discrimination, which is a different issue than disorganization, I would add. And so, biblically, I don't believe we are required to have deacons. Just for the, the sake of being comprehensive, I want you to know that we have looked at two of the three places where deacons are specifically referenced to in the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Romans chapter 16. The other place where the word deacon is specifically used is Philippians 1.1, when Paul is writing a letter to the church at Philippi, along with, guess who? Timothy. <laughs> Timothy. And in their greeting, they say to God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, to together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Acts chapter 6, we use as a prototype in some ways, an illustration of what it could look like, a start of that division. Doesn't even use the word deacon. We've covered, we did it. We covered all the passages that deal with this. So we can say, when it comes to the deacon discussion, that there were definitely deacons at Philippi. Doesn't make sense to send a greeting to the deacons if they're not actually there. Phoebe could have been one, it seems, at the church in Syncre. Here in 1 Timothy 3, we are given qualifications to be one, which probably means there were deacons in Ephesus. It isn't used in Acts 6, though we still look to the 7 for inspiration. And that's kind of the main passages in the discussion of deacons. We did it. <laughs> yeah, oh, there we are. I've done, I... That's, I don't even know about that right now. I, let's, let's make this more personal. Can we do that? Let's see what we can do. One thing you may not know about our church is that every ministry and every committee at this church has a specific elder providing some level of accountability or oversight. Not that the elder executes the business or roles of the ministry or committee, but the elder is present to ensure that there is a spiritual maturity or health within that ministry and the administration of church business by the ones serving in those areas. So I would submit to you that if there is not a pressing need for the deacon role to be filled, that we are not biblically obligated to fill that position. But I would also submit to you that our church is growing. 
that our church ministries are expanding, new ministries are starting, new needs and old needs are increasing. We are ministering increasingly to more people in more places and in more ways. We are talking about church planting. We are talking about expanding this building itself. So the idea of an elder having any measure of meaningful oversight in some of these areas might become more of a stretch. And maybe if we're honest, it could be a stretch in some areas already. So perhaps this is a really timely message because if we don't have official deacons today, that doesn't mean we won't tomorrow. Which brings us back to this. Will you sign up to be this kind of person? Will you work in these four areas, self-control, orthodox convictions, irreproachable home life, and be ready to be tested should the call for deacons go out? Now, for those of you who are already kind of in the roles of a deacon, just without the title and already doing much of the work, thank you. Thank you for serving this church. Thank you for taking so many hours of ministry into your hands. You probably have already been tested in a number of ways, and I would ask you to continue to be faithful. But also know that there is a day potentially coming where we may ask you to continue in that ministry, but more in this official role. Maybe we are close to a time for official deacons. We may not have the thousands that Jerusalem had, but we do have needs. And I believe God is doing things here and that we will need more hands, not less, to do the work that God is calling us to. So whether deacon, elder, faithful committee member, or committee chair, staff, or volunteer, will we be who God calls us to be? And can we look to the bar set as examples of spiritual Spiritually mature Christians in 1 Timothy 3 and submit ourselves to Christ in such a way that these qualifications uniformly can be used to describe us. I ask you to endeavor to that end. It is certainly for your own spiritual benefit to look at yourself and pursue this. And if the need arises to meet these qualifications, you may have the opportunity to minister to our entire community in a special capacity as a deacon as well.